Saul knows what it looks like to be a good Israelite, what it looks like to be a pious man. And so he'll go about making that happen in his own way. He will go about faking the process of transformation, the process of sanctification for as long as he possibly can. And we know what it looks like to be a good Christian. We know what to wear. We know what to eat. We know what to say. We know what not to say. We know who to talk to. We know not to talk to. I mean, I can give you a whole list. We could spend the next 30 minutes of do's and don'ts. But none of that is going to save me. Hello and welcome to When the Bible Wasn't There. My name is Marco. And I'm Josh. What do you do when the Bible doesn't seem personal and when you just can't hear the voice of God? Join us as we explore and find the deeper message hidden within the Bible stories we thought we knew. So last time we talked about Saul, we left him as this king who gives honor and glory to God, someone who understands who God is and who he is in relation to him, a king who gives honor and glory to the king of kings. But just two years later and two chapters later in the Bible, we see that Saul has kind of changed. He's now doing things that bring him honor and glory, worrying about losing and winning battles and how he'll look. What's happened to this king that was following God, that wanted to know God more and more in the span of these two years? Why has he changed? So I would like to go ahead and backtrack just a little bit. And so we see that right after the assembly that they had at Gilgal, we see that Saul does something that is quite rash. He is not thinking straight. And uh, the confidence in him, his confidence gets the best of him. Instead of, you know, putting his confidence and trust in God, he now begins to trust in himself. And the way that this is actually manifested is that he decides that right after this victory, he's going to go ahead and split his army. And actually, if you think about it from a human perspective, you've just had a, a great victory. It makes sense to split the army because you're already done pretty much. So now you can kind of relax and kind of station like uh, different uh, military bases, right? And he does this. And I would like also to, to mention that we need to always keep in perspective that Saul is a servant of the people, or at least he should be. And at this point in history, he begins to trust in himself and he begins to divide his army. And we see later on how this affects him and the kingdom. Some of the critical points in Saul's history and the history of the children of Israel, when he begins to make the wrong choices, because these small choices are the ones that are going to shape his future. And I think as in our, you know, in our Christian life as well, there's a Bible verse, which I can't remember the reference. It speaks about the importance of the small things. 
And this is very, this is very critical because many times you, many times it is very easy for us to say, well, we try and look at the big picture and say, you know, we would all like to spend eternity with Christ. Like as Christians, this is our goal. This is our dream. But many times we fail to pay attention to the small details in the Christian life. And it is the same thing with Saul. You know, right after, you know, he has this great victory. You know, the children of Israel have been oppressed for some time by the Philistines. And because they were, you know, oppressed, one of the one of the things the Philistines put on the Israelites is that they could not make their own weapons. This went on for years. And guess who the Israelites would go to for their weapons after the oppression? They would keep going back to the Philistines to get what they needed in order to be successful. Just imagine, they were praying, Lord, help us win the battle against the Philistines. And guess who was providing the weapons? The Philistines. In order for us to be victorious, you have to do your own study. You have to spend that time with Christ to gain strength and nobody else can do this for you. And this is the way that Satan works. It's interesting too, because what you just lined out, how they didn't build their own weapons, how their weapons were provided by the Philistines. And even how some, in some eras of their history, they were, they were forbidden to own weapons, right? So they were forbidden to protect themselves. They were forbidden to do all that. But then God also says something to them. He forbades them from having chariots. All the other nations, they have chariots. It was like the powerful weapon of the day. It was the almost like the, you could say the newest technology, the nuclear weapon of its era. It made your army powerful. But God told them, no, you, you, you can't have that. Don't make any chariots. And what's interesting to me in that is that what God was telling them there is you can't rely on your own might. Your might does not make right. You know, you need to rely on me. Don't worry about what other people have, what other people are doing. If you're with me, we can we can take down the chariots. We can take down these powerful weapons, these powerful things that are coming against you in your life. You don't have to equip yourself because I'm the one equipping you. And this is this is what Saul this is what Saul has lost here. This is the the thought process that he can't grasp anymore. And I think also what is uh, worth mentioning as well is that the only ones that had weapons at this time which uh, that had a spear and a sword which was your pretty much your basic things for war was Saul and, and Saul and Jonathan that's it and this kind of shows us that many times we we trust on our spiritual leaders to kind of have everything figured out for us and then we go for them you know for counsel and we value their opinion I'm not saying that we're not supposed to value their opinion because obviously they have a lot of knowledge. They spend time researching and studying. But at the same time, we need to make sure that we're able to do the study for ourselves as well. Saul's job as a leader was supposed to make sure that they were equipping the people. And by them equipping the people, they would be successful as, as long as they trusted God. So at this point, only Saul and Jonathan have, you know, have a spear and a sword. And as Christians, we need to make sure that we're doing our own personal study. So we begin that right from the get-go, Saul is already heading toward, uh, toward, toward a totally different direction. The people are not equipped. 
they are trusting for the Philistines for their weapons. And all of a sudden, he's super happy that he just had this great victory. And now he has divided his army. And he's confident. He puts the power and the victory in his army. And he says, well, if my army could win, then I can split them up and they'll still win. Because he thinks it's all about his tactics, his leadership, and the men underneath him. He doesn't understand, again, who was there winning the battle. It wasn't any of the Israelites. He said it. But he didn't understand it. And maybe he did in that moment. But now he's lost the understanding of it. And I think we do the same thing, right? We praise God. We go to church. Say, oh, I'm so thankful to God. I got through this week. It was very stressful. And then we're ready to turn around and take credit for anything. For the littlest of things in our lives. When all good things come from God. And I think as, as humans, we have a hard time. Um, we have really a hard time wrapping this around our, our heads because we look at ourselves and we're like man i do have abilities i do have talents yeah and we forget that yes we have talents we have abilities but just imagine if god would remove his breath from us we're simply dust just dust and when you know when we when we begin to think about who we are we really understand that we're actually nothing without God. And now in this, uh, this point of the story, Saul is getting ready to go ahead and, and get involved in another war. But there's specific conditions that God has communicated to him through Samuel the prophet. So now he gets to the point you know, he, like we said, he split up his army. He's starting to trust more and more in himself. And then he's told to wait seven days for Samuel to come to offer the sacrifice, to get the blessing for this war that's about to happen. And six and five days come. And now he's like, oh, Samuel will be here in two days. Six days come. He's like, Samuel will be here tomorrow. Seven days come. He's like, Samuel's going to be here today. But the eighth day comes. There's no Samuel. Ninth day comes. No Samuel. He starts to wonder and he... To be frank, he starts to freak out. He starts to lose his composure because people are deserting. People are running away. People are hiding in caves. Their confidence in him is dwindling and his confidence in God is non-existent. But, but here's the thing. He's told right from the beginning that he's supposed to wait seven days. Right? So seven days, you know, should, shouldn't be that big of a deal. You wait seven days after seven days he's coming. But one of the things that, that I find, uh, re well, that I find interesting here in, in the story is that the waiting for Samuel to get here is supposed and designed to make sure that you're not trusting in yourself and you're trusting in God. I mean, this is, this is why we get trials. And, and God sends us trials simply to make you realize that you don't have it together, that God is in control of everything, that we need to trust in God. Let me take that back. He's not in control of everything because God cannot make you do what you don't want to do. But he is able to help us and we're supposed to trust in him. But now this time, like you said, people are getting desperate. It's already the eighth day and Samuel is not there. God is late. <laughs> Intentionally. He's intentionally late. And then we're told 
in the scriptures that Saul doesn't make any decided effort to, to go ahead and encourage the people. Check what Moses would be doing in his case. I, of course, I'm not comparing, right? But here's, uh, Moses was a man who did not trust in himself. And he makes it very clear, even before he goes to Egypt, that he doesn't, he's, he believes that he's not able to do it. But he knows that with God's strength, he's able to do anything. So he has that very clear. And Saul, in this case, instead of trusting in God and saying, let us trust in the Lord, he doesn't actually encourage the people. He doesn't inspire the people to go ahead and trust in God. He allows himself to be driven and influenced by the people. And this is the biggest sign. This is the biggest sign. This is the biggest sign that Saul is no longer being led by God. When he allows himself to be influenced by the people, Saul is no longer allowing God to lead him. And this is where, as ministers, I mean, you work in ministry as well. You know, we work in ministry and one of the litmus tests that we can use in order to find out if we are being led by, by God is when you begin to find and try and get the approval of people. And when you begin to try and make sure that your message was pleasing to the people, this is when it becomes when it becomes dangerous because you're not that's not your feedback your feedback is god have i communicated your message to the people have i inspired them to obedience it's really always really interesting to me you brought up a really good point being in ministry you know it's very easy to let your ego get fed to let your ego take control of what you do. You know, after every message, you know, you shake people's hands like, oh, wonderful message, brother, wonderful message. And it's it's very easy to take that in, to internalize that, to be like, oh, I'm such a talented speaker, look at me. But in that moment, what I, what I always try and do and what I encourage anyone else to do is immediately respond with, praise God, glory to God. Like immediately take the credit away from yourself. Don't give yourself a moment to dwell on it as if it's your own, right? Because that's the key thing, it's not. And the reason is that when we begin to take all this credit for ourselves, then imagine somebody comes and tells you, hey man, I did not like what you said. What do you do now? What do you do now? Are you going to change? Are we going to change our message? Mm -hmm. And I think if someone comes to you and let's say like you're doing a Bible study or you're preaching and you know sometimes we get into this and it sounds like we're just talking to Bible workers to ministers but we're all involved in the work in our own way so if you share something with someone and they come back to you and they disagree with it well you shouldn't change what you say but it should encourage you to go back to the word it should encourage you to 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 re-examine what you were saying so not to cut out what we've been saying not to stop saying it but to reconfirm that it is from the Lord and if it's not you're right we need to take that criticism and correct it but then you have to have a dialogue. That's super important. We see that Saul doesn't have this with Samuel. And it leads to his ruin. But one of the things that interests uh, me here in the story is that Saul allows himself to be discouraged. He doesn't say anything to the people. Okay, He doesn't prepare the people spiritually in order to be ready for the sacrifice. And then as a result, you know, all of this starts getting to him and he decides to act rashly and to perform the sacrifice himself. One thing that is critical here is that the outcome is the same. 
the sacrifice happened. The Lord said, there needs to be a sacrifice. It needs to be performed by Samuel. And Saul says, okay, a sacrifice needs to be done. I will do it. The outcome will be the same. The way it's done is going to be different. And as Christians, we always run into this problem because we remove something from God's commandments and we say, look, the outcome is actually the same. The outcome is the same. And we see the result. What happens with when Samuel gets to him and finds out that he has done everything different except the outcome. What I find the most interesting is what scripture says happens next. In Samuel chapter 13, it says that Samuel arrives right after Saul offers the sacrifice. If only he would have waited. If only he would have taken the time to pray, to confide in God. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When is Samuel going to show up? Just let him show up, Lord. If he would have prayed, waited a few moments, we wouldn't have gotten into this mess. But now Samuel gets there and he sees what's happened and he says, What have you done? What have you done? And he and Sam, Samuel is shocked to see what Saul has done and Saul is shocked to hear the response. In Saul's eyes, he has accomplished what the Lord wanted. And you know, one of the things that, that I really find significant here is the way that always God has these leading questions to kind of make you think on what has happened. You know, we see the same, you know, style of questions when Adam and Eve sin, you know, God asks them, where are you? Of course, he knows where they are. But this question really, really helps Saul to kind of think what is what has brought him to that position. And of course, you know, Simon, uh, Saul begins to say, look, the people were pressuring me, you know, you weren't coming. But I would like to go back and also to notice here that Samuel comes right after Saul performs a sacrifice, which means that God's delay is intentional. God wanted to know whether or not Saul was actually going to trust in him this time. That was a question. And God is never going to give you a trial that is unnecessary. Let's put it that way. Everything has an intention. Everything has a design. When we hear people say, oh, God will never give you anything more than you can bear. I can't bear anything on my own. I'm literally incapable of bearing any trial on my own. He will never give me anything that I can't bear with him. Right? And that's the key thing. This trial was too much for Saul alone, just like any trial is. It, the trial is meant to bring you to the foot of the cross, to bring you to Christ, to say, I need your help in this because I'm going to fail without you. One thing that is uh, that we should note is that as Christians, you can do stuff. Okay? You can do stuff. However, you cannot fully obey God. You can't perfectly obey God. And here's the reason why. Saul was capable to do what God said needed to be done. And that was a sacrifice needs to happen. Saul was able to have to do that. You know, he was able to perform that. However, he wasn't in his own strength capable of obeying God fully. And that's the key. Exactly. That is the key. And it goes back to something we've talked about a lot. Legalism, right? The, the, the letter of the law without the spirit of the law without it affecting your heart, without it transforming you. Saul knows what it looks like to be a good Israelite, what it looks like to be a pious man. And so 
he'll go about making that happen in his own way. He will go about faking the process of transformation, the process of sanctification for as long as he possibly can. And we know what it looks like to be a good Christian. We know what to wear. We know what to eat. We know what to say. We know what not to say. We know who to talk to. We know not to talk to. I mean, I can give you a whole list. We could spend the next 30 minutes of do's and don'ts. But none of that is going to save me. None of that is going to save me because it's all the, the symbolism, the emptiness of religion without the transforming love and power of Christ. And also, it's worth mentioning that, of course, we can, like you said, we can actually list, you know, the days that you should worship, the day that you should worship, and so on and so forth. But the thing is that it's worth to mention that if you don't do that, you're still going to be lost. Okay? If there's no obedience, you're, you're still going to be lost. But at the same time, even if you accomplish those things without the strength of God, which means that you haven't obeyed perfectly, you're still going to be lost. And I think what you're saying is totally true. I agree. I agree that you cannot be saved without doing what God commands. But David sums it up perfectly when he says, Yet you desire faithfulness in, in the inward parts. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Right? Like, you want me to be made new. You want me to be changed. You want me to leave everything behind and this to be something that changes me from the inside out. If, if I'm keeping the Sabbath, but I lie and I cheat and I steal and I fornicate and I, you know, covet my neighbor's wife and I do all these things, well, God's still going to say to me, I, I don't know you. I don't know who you are because I didn't change. I didn't let him change who I was. I tried to change myself. And in that, I will always fail. I will always fail miserably and fall right on my face. And if, and if I pay attention and listen I'll notice that when I do fall, I fall at the feet of the cross and then I'll be able to get back up. But if I try and get my get up by myself, I'll just fall in the right in the same spot right again. And we always fall right there. Right at right where Jesus is willing to help us. And I think uh, when we look when we go ahead and, and look at the New Testament, Jesus makes it very clear. Obedience to the Ten Commandments it's obedience from the heart. He goes ahead and said, look, if you look at a woman to covet her, and when you, uh, when you go ahead and, and look at your, you know, your neighbor's ass, your neighbor's donkey, your neighbor's wife, you're already committing fornication. You're already committing adultery in your mind. And the change that God wants to do is he wants to write his law in your heart. That's so at this point, Saul makes a mistake. He has trusted in himself. He has been taken. And by the way, the reason is, the reason why he doesn't have trust in God, the reason why he doesn't have faith in God is because he has taken the glory to himself. And because he has believed now that the glory belongs to him, that the reason why he has been successful in the past is because of his own talents now when people begin to lose faith in him, then he begins to get scared. And now he needs to go ahead and do, and do something for himself, which, by the way, it's not what God required of him. And this is the whole thing. Uh, we do this as Christians. And, you know, we say, oh, yep, I'm a vegetarian. Yep, I keep the Sabbath. Yes, I dress modestly. Uh, 
yep, I, I don't curse. I don't, I don't do any of those things. I'm such a great person. Just like the Pharisee in the parable that Jesus tells, the Pharisee says, look at me, Lord. I'm not like the public and I'm not like these other sinners. I'm a righteous man. I follow the law. I do all these good things. And he gives all the glory to himself for this. And this is where Christianity becomes toxic. It becomes something horrible and it's because it stops being genuine Christianity. It becomes it becomes a form of Satanism because then you start to worship yourself, right? And that sounds strange. That sounds harsh to say, but that's the, the fact. If you are a Christian who goes around saying things like this, well, then you need to start calling yourself what you are. You're a Satanist. You worship yourself. But we also need to remember that this is a reason why Saul fails to obey God. He trusts himself, and now he's unable to go ahead and accomplish what God has asked of him. But here is where, in this next part of the story, this is where God shows his mercy. Because even though at this point Saul has disobeyed God, he has trusted in himself, the Bible tells us that even though he has, he has made the arm of flesh his support, God does not abandon him yet. He's still there. And he's really hoping that Saul will realize that without God, he's not able to obey him. Without God, he's not able to be victorious. Anything that should be accomplished should be accomplished in God's strength. But later on in the story, we find out that, unfortunately, he's not able to learn the lesson this time. And it's amazing to me that God is a God who gives, you know, second chances, third chances, fourth chances. He's this God of mercy. You know, your mercies are new every morning is what the psalmist writes. And so he sends Samuel to Saul and he says, look, God has a job for you. God anointed you king and now he has a job for you. You're going to go and you're going to slay all the Amalekites. And this sounds harsh. This sounds strange. And one of my favorite authors puts it this way, that the work of destruction is a strange work to God even. Like, it's, it's not what he's used to doing. He's used to creating. He's used to making things new. But here he says, you have to go destroy the Malachites to kill everything, even down to the suckling baby. And we're like, whoa, God is harsh. And atheists, atheists say, I don't want to believe in a God like that. But he gave the Malachites chance after chance after chance. And now it's time to protect his own. Now it's time to protect his people. And if you remember from pre the previous season, if you're a long-time listener, you'll know that we alluded to the fact that the Amalekites represent sin. They represent sin in your life, and now God is saying, okay, Saul, you need to destroy all the sin that's around you, all the sin that's in your life. You need to get rid of it. But something happens. They go and they, they decide to keep the sheep. They decide to take the king. They decide that they're going to keep certain things. And the Bible says, all that was good and pleasing in their eyes, they kept. And that which they despised, they utterly destroyed. And so it's like, it, if we make the analogy of the Amalekites being sin, or being a representation of sin, we could say it's almost like when God says, you know, okay, get to know me, help me, let me change who you are, and surrender your sin, we'll say, okay, all the sins that I hate, that I despise, all the things I know aren't good for me, 
I'll give you those, God. But there are certain things I like, things that are beautiful in my eyes, things that I value, that I appreciate, that make me feel good. I think I'll hold on to those things. I think that, you know, I'm okay with those things. And God is like, that's not how this works. It's either all or nothing. Yeah, I was, uh, the other time I was talking to, um, to this one pastor and he said, we need to question whether or not sin is intrinsically evil or it is simply evil because God tells us that it is sin to disobey him. And, and this is, this is important because when you believe that sin is actually bad because God tells you it is bad, it really, you know, draws a different picture of who God is. Because when you realize that God tells you, look, don't touch the stove because you're going to get hurt. It's very different than don't touch the to- stove because I said so and I have authority over you. And if you don't, there will be a consequence. It, it, it boils down to is sin sin because God says it is or does he say it is because it is? Is he telling you something is bad for you? Or is he, is he a tyrant trying to control you? And right now, Saul is becoming a, a tyrannical king. I mean, we skipped over it, but he makes this, his men swear this crazy oath not to eat. He says he'll kill anyone if they do. And he's becoming a tyrant. But his view of God, he thinks God is like him. He thinks God is a tyrannical king. The thing is that he's only able to come to this point because he believes that he does things by his own power. This is the only reason why he, he gets to this point. When you believe that you're able to obey God because of your own strength, you will be tyrannical to people. You will be manipulative. You will remove the liberty from people to do what they desire to do. And this is something that God never does. Throughout the biblical narrative, you will never find God forcing somebody to obey him. He will never do that. And um, and this is one of the things that really jumps out from this story because look at what Saul expresses when we're reading the book of Samuel. He says, I force myself to do this. Just look into the language. I force myself to do this. I mean, I've heard people from church say things like that about different things they do about different doctrines they keep. I force myself, oh, I do this and it's such a burden to me to do this. Uh, well, then go and pray and re-examine why you're doing it. And th- this is where Saul is too. He needs to re-examine his relationship with God. And just as we talked about, just as we talked about in the previous episode, if you're in a, a, in a relationship, and I know we keep getting back to the issue of relationship, but the reason is, and I need to reiterate this, the reason is because God uses the analogy of, of a relationship between a man and a woman in order to exemplify his relationship to us. If you have a girlfriend, again, okay, if you have a girlfriend, if, and you don't love her, even the most basic things will become a burden. Even the most basic things. And to Saul, I mean, it's very obvious he doesn't have a relationship with God at this point because he's self-sufficient. He believes that he can do these things on his own. And, of course, they become a very heavy burden. And at this point, you know, sin looks very attractive. And by the way, all the nations around him were doing that. Whenever you have a victory, you bring the best of the best and show the people, hey, this is what we did. This is what we're able to accomplish. Check this out. 
isn't this amazing? Look how powerful we are. And look how powerful I am as the king. And this was very common even up until the Roman era and the Byzantine era, where when you caught, when you captured a military leader or a leader of another country, you would take them into your capital city in chains and drag them through the city to show your might, your power, what you had accomplished. And it, well, something else that's interesting to me is that it says that Saul builds himself a monument. He builds himself a monument to his glory, to his honor. What would happen, you know, when a king was faithful to God, they will make a sacrifice to God to thank him for what he had done. And one of the things that when we go back to the book of Samuel and we begin to see there, we see that Sam, I mean, that Saul shows no regard to the requirements of God. By the way, this is the other chance that we're talking about. You know, before he went ahead and sacrificed without waiting for Samuel, God says, all right, you know, I'll let this one go, but you really need to learn the lesson to trust in me, Saul. Let's do this again. You're going to kill all the Amalekites. And now Saul disregards God's requirements totally. And we have to ask ourselves, because remember, we're talking about a man that is in ministry to serve the people. And the question that you should ask, that I should ask myself, anybody that is in ministry, by the way, we're all born, you know, missionaries in the kingdom of God. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is super simple. Do you care what God asks of you? And this is a very loaded question because you can only care when you love God. You can only care when you love someone. This is what's really interesting to me too. And we'll, it goes into exactly what you're saying. If we jump into 1 Samuel chapter 15, it says here that when Samuel arrives, Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have done what the Lord has commanded of me. And then so Samuel responds, like logically, he says, What is this then? The bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear. He says, you've done what the Lord says, but why do I hear all this noise? And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice. Now pay attention to this, to the Lord, your God. And the rest we utterly destroyed. Not the Lord, not my God, not God, your God. And this, this, this establishes how Saul views himself in relation to God. It's not his God. They're not in a relationship. They don't have a connection. And he's just doing the least bit he can out of some form of obligation, some form of outward showmanship. And you know, when I was reading, I was reading Samuel, I'm reading through this, through this passage that you mentioned here. And it makes me want to vomit. Because imagine God has been, okay, and I know this is very graphic and me of all people, even if I hear somebody vomiting, I'm like, I start to, to, uh, to gag as well. But imagine God has given specific directions. Okay. Another chance, Saul, you have another chance. Will you trust in me? And then he comes with this reply. This is so disgust, and I can just imagine the disgust that Samuel had. You don't even have to imagine it. It's there in the text, how disgusted he is. And even before this, we skipped over it, and I think we should mention it really quickly. God tells Samuel, when, he, when, God, when it happens, God knows it happened, this betrayal, this, this dishonesty of, of Saul. He tells Samuel, I regret that I made him king. And we all, we have to take a look at, at this word because the word regret is not uh, the word regret used in the Bible text is not 
translated the way that we use it. For example, as humans, we say, I regret doing this. And you're like, I wish I didn't do that. But in God's eyes, the word regret means something different. And I think the best way to put it is how one author puts it, how God doesn't change. He stays the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no turning or, or changing with him. He is constant. Now, what happens is that Saul has changed. Saul has stopped being the man who could be king, who could understand his place to God, who could value it, and who could walk in those footsteps. And so God says, this isn't a change on my part. The conditions to be mine haven't changed, but your approach to me has, your love for me has, your willingness to be in this has. And this is the key, what you mentioned right now, um, from the same author, this is what she writes. She says that there is no safety except in strict, be in strict obedience to God. All promises are made upon condition of faith and obedience. And a failure to comply with his commands cuts off the fulfillment to us of the rich provisions of the scripture. So that means that God is present every single, every single step of the way. In order for us to render perfect obedience, we need to rely on God. So you need to rely on God for perfect obedience. But nothing besides perfect obedience will satisfy. Absolutely. Which means that in order to render perfect obedience, you need to trust in God. And this is what, as Christians, we... You need to have a relationship with Him. You need to fall in love with Him. And this is something we stress almost every episode. But if you don't love God, none of this works. And we see that here. We see it in this story and we see it throughout Scripture. And the key thing is that Samuel can't take any more of this. Samuel... He hears these excuses and he wants to he wants to throw up as you said he he's disgusted and he says be quiet just be quiet Saul stop making excuses you know I teach second grade on top of the many other things that I do and these kids when they get caught doing something wrong oh boy do they have excuses this is what Samuel does he says be quiet and listen to what the Lord has to say that's powerful. That's like, and Saul can't do anything besides say, speak on. He, he, the excuses are done. And now it's time for the Lord to speak. It says, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you sweep down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agin, the king of the Amalekites, and utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord. Again, your God in Gilgal. So Samuel says, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? What does God care about more? My outward shows of religion? My sacrifices? Oh, I, I can't do that. I don't, I don't eat this anymore. I don't do that anymore. And then in my heart, I kind of am upset that I can't do those things anymore. I'm upset at the sacrifices I made for the Lord and I don't obey him in other things. And God is saying, I don't care about these sacrifices you're making. I want you to obey me. I want you to fall in love with me. 
I want this to be genuine in your heart. Does the Lord care about sacrifice or obedience? We have just come at this moment to, I think, the pivotal you know, part of the story. And, um, you know, the I was talking this, this past week with a pastor of X denomination. And we were talking about the story of division throughout the biblical narrative. I mean, you go through the Bible, you go through the Old Testament, you talk, you read about the kingdom of Israel being divided in two. You go to the New Testament, you see the division between, you know, the Gentiles coming into the faith and the Jews. So there's there's always this division happening, this exodus happening from Egypt, this leaving of Babylon. And um, and we were talking, what is it that really causes a division? When is division justified? Because at this point in the history, their leader is not obeying God. Their leader is not making God his trust. And this is, this is what one of my favorite authors writes. There's only two options. She says, at this point in history, either Israel must cease to be the people of God because the king has disobeyed and they have also disobeyed. So either Israel must cease to be the people of God or the principle upon which the monarchy was founded must be maintained and the nation must be governed by the divine power. So just to, it, it's only two things. Either God's people cease to be his people or the leader has to change. There's nothing else. And if the leader is a tyrant, if he's cruel, if he mis, misuses the commands of God, twists the words of God, well, oh boy, you better believe the people are going to do the same. The scriptures continue, and at this point, Saul is still speechless. He can't say anything. But Samuel sums this up for us, and he says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he shall also reject you from being king. You know, one of the things that, that I notice here is that God does not reject you unless you have rejected him. And it's not really God trying to reject you because this is one of the things that I would like to that I would like to make sure that everybody that is listening at this moment realizes that even if you have made a mistake, even if you had been in the case of Saul, we've all been there. I can say personally that I've been there as well. But you have to remember that God, God will not reject you unless you reject him. It's as simple as that. If you had make a mistake, that is okay, but the chance is still there. The chance is, is, is still there. And God is still able to work with you, but you have to give God a chance. And he's going to have to give you another trial because he has to allow you to make sure that you make it clear that you do want to be obedient to Christ, that you do want to have a relationship with him. Now, at this point in the story, you know, Saul, you know, has made it very clear that he hasn't taken Samuel's reproof um, to heart. And now Saul, the leader, Saul, the minister to the people, Saul, the servant to the Israelites, makes another mistake. And my favorite author continues to write where she says what he now lacked in real piety, he would now try to make it up by his zeal in forms of religion. 
So now he doesn't have this relationship with Christ. And now in order to make up for the lack of this, he begins to make stuff up. So at this point, um, you know, Stahl has been rejecting the Holy Spirit. He, has, he hasn't allowed the Holy Spirit to enlighten him, to give him wisdom, to soften his heart. And in, in the story of Israel, you know, talking about Saul, which was the very first king that they ever had, gives us a good example of what early wrong habits can do in your Christian life. The Bible tells us that when we come to the day of judgment, it's going to be the small things that are actually going to make a difference. And we see this exemplified in the, in the life of Christ. In Luke, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and he grew in stature. So his early life was going to shape him for what he was going to do later on in ministry. And this, we see that it is no different from, the, uh, from Saul's case. When he was young, the, everything was meant to prepare him for the job that he was going to have. But if he didn't allow to be prepared by the Holy Spirit, there was nothing that God can do for him. So now Saul is fearful, and not because of the sin or his place with God, but because the consequence of his sin, the idea of losing the kingdom, the power, the glory he's gained for himself, leaves him in a dark place. And now Samuel begins to leave. He can't stay with Saul. Look, I, he says, look, I can't stay with you. You've, you've sinned against the Lord, and for me to stay here would be for me to agree, to condone your sin, so I have to leave. And as he leaves, Saul reaches out and tears his garment. And Samuel says a prophecy tied now to this torn garment. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. Amazing. You know, those words are very powerful when it says, and have given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. That is the epitome of comparing somebody. And I mean, these words are so strong. And imagine if these words were told to you. I mean, these, these words would shatter your world, anybody's world. But why is it that Samuel is saying there's somebody that is better than you? It is not to bring down Saul's self-esteem. The only reason why his neighbor, and later on we will find that this man was David, the only reason why he was better is because he was a man after God's own heart. That is the only difference. That is the only, that is the only reason. And later on in the story, we find out that Saul wasn't too disturbed by, by uh, God's displeasure. He wasn't so disturbed by the fact that he had disobeyed God. He was more afraid and disturbed by the fact that now Samuel was not going to be by his side. And this meant a lot of things. This, this meant that God's religious leader on earth for his people was not going to be on his side. And for him, this, only made, uh, this was only a political reason. Because the people would see this and say, hey, the prophet is not by his side. Something's wrong. One of my favorite authors puts it this way, that God's hand was forced in rejecting Saul, in leaving Saul, because Saul wanted nothing to do with him. And because Saul wanted nothing to do with him, he was now unfit to be the representative of God. You can't be the representative of someone that you don't want any, anything to do with. He could not represent the, God to the people of Israel as their king. So now God, has to, now God has to start making things right. 
And the first thing that has to be made right is that the command that he had sent to be done has to be done the right way. And so Samuel calls for Agin, the king of the Amalekites, to be brought to him. And in front of the Lord and in front of the host of the armies of Israel, he kills him. There's, no, there's going to be no military triumph here. No one is going to get glory for this. The Lord commanded something to be done, and it must be done. And now God begins to set other things in motion, to begin to move on from the disaster of a king that Saul became, the regrettable king of Saul. And it shows us that God is not stagnant. He moves on. He begins to make things new. He says, I'm making streams in the desert. I'm making things new. Do you not perceive it? So now he finds a man who can represent him, a man who is after his own heart. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. 